0: There are two two, uh, texts this morning, not necessarily two sermons, but two two texts I want to call your attention to. One is in the seventh chapter of the book of Jeremiah. And the second text is an amplification of that or a validation of that text in the eleventh chapter of the book of Mark. And so I'll read the text in the 7th chapter of Jeremiah beginning at verse 9 Will you steal murder and commit adultery swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have known then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered that you may do all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Therefore, verse 14, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brothers and all the offspring of Ephraim. And the 11th chapter of Mark, verse 15 and following. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's cave, a robber's den. Could it be that you have made this house which is called by my name, a den of robbers. An incredible thing to say. That this place, very place where we put on our Sunday best and come to worship could be a hiding place where we hide from our crimes, a kind of hideout where one holds up against justice. That's what he's talking about. Incredible thought. That the house of God would become a place where we hide from the reality of ourselves and our involvement with others and God. Could that be possible? Well, it was true in Jeremiah's day. And so he, in verse 9 alone, condemns them for violating at least five of the commandments. And what, the worst thing about their religion was its hypocrisy. That they could stride into the sanctuary and say, We are saved, we are delivered, and then go back out and pick up their sins where they left off never considering that God would even care. And they said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, we're church-going folks, and God will never be angry with us, not us, not here. Incredible, it was true in Jeremiah's time. But what about us? Well, God is a loving, forgiving Father, is He not? And because he is a loving forgiving father that makes everything all right. And because we believe that God loves and forgives, it has kind of it has kind of violated our understanding of sin. So, you know, why would you want to get all worked up or, you know, be all concerned about repentance and change if there is no sin? regardless of how often it is committed, that would separate us from His care. And that's the kind of philosophy that seems to pervade our culture, that God loves and God forgives, and therefore it doesn't really matter concerning repentance and change. And it may be true, that these words are as relevant for our time as when the part, when the ink was wet on the parchment. And it may be our indictment, the indictment under which we stand before God. You have made this house a, a robber's cave, a hiding place. Now I want to see if I can be more specific about how that could possibly be. In the first place, Sometimes we use our religion to protect ourselves against the change that needs to be made in our lives in light of His demand. For the rationale is, is this, that if we are saved from the eternal penalties of sin, then it's really not that necessary to become disassociated from present sin. There is some validity to the charges that are made against Baptists by those who worship across the street, and the charge is often made: "Well, you Baptists hide behind the doctrine of once saved, always saved. For after all, if you're always saved, then you know what? Why would you get so excited about you know uh, repentance or change?" And you use that kind of as an excuse to hide behind the wall of protection and there's no real concern about holiness or righteousness and there is not much validity but there is some validity to to that kind of charge. The fact is that there are some things that need to change. Now what are they? I suppose every minister would like to, a, you know, a good excuse to bring out a laundry list of the things that need to change. But I'm going to resist that temptation, and I'm going to be uh, honest to the text. I'm going to say that there is one thing, only one thing that needs to change, and it's this, that his house needs to become his house again. The sin of the ancient Jew was that his house had become their house. And the very place where God met them had become their temple. Oh, they called it the temple of the Lord, but it was really their temple. And they came on, sun, they came on the worship days, and they put on their religious face, and they punched their religious time card, and they paid their religious dues, but they did what they wanted to And if this is really His place, and we're really people of His place, then every action of our life comes under His influence, and every conclusion, even our religious conclusions, are subject to change, and everything we have and everything we do is up for grabs. Now, is this really His place? Well, the real test of that is how are you going to be different when you leave? For there is one uh, test that can be applied to whether or not this is His place and we are people of His place and this is the test. What changes are going to be made in your life because you were in His place? What, kind of different, what difference is it going to make in your relationship with your spouse? And how are you going to be different as a parent? And what are you going to do that's different with regard to the way you transact your business? And how are you going to represent Him tomorrow in the dormitory or the classroom? For I'm absolutely convinced that God would be, rather be unrepresented than misrepresented. Now, Max Lucado, Good Church of Christ... Uh, everybody quotes Max, and we quote him here often, and I, he's written some maxims. just jotted them down. Now, these maxims are really rules for life, and they're principles to live by, So I want to mention a couple of them and, and see, if, see if any of them you like, and then I want to amplify them, give Max a little help. Here's one: "God forgets the past, imitate him." You know? What he's at? He's, you know what he's saying? How can I be a people of his place and hold a grudge? How can I come to, the, to God's house, and this be his house, and go away with bitterness? I heard about a lady who was bitten by a rabid dog, and she went to the doctor. He diagnosed it. His prognosis was she had rabies, and he said, you're going to die. You might better get your house in order, and he left for her to get dressed. He came back, and she was making out a list. He said, what are you doing, making out a list of people to call and tell that you're dying? And she said, no, I'm making out a list of the folks I want to bite. Now there are are some folks, there are some folks that live, that was funnier than I thought it would be. There are some folks that just live for the opportunity of, of biting somebody. I mean, how can, you be, how can this be God's house and that be your, your attitude? Here's a second maxim. Greed I've often regretted, generosity never. In other words, he's saying, if you're people of God's house, how can you ever be selfish? I read J. Winston Pierce's testimony. He said one morning he was sitting in his magnificent church in South Carolina with his heavy duty carpet and beautiful organ and great stained glass windows and magnificent setting and he said they were the organist was was playing the offertory and he was sitting up there with his head bowed in meditation praying for god to help him in the sermon and he said i sent somebody standing in front of me first clue was his body odor he said this reeking odor of a homeless man been on the streets for days he said I opened my eyes and standing right in front of me looking right in my face was this homeless man and when he spoke he said his breath reeked with alcohol and he said to J. Winston Pierce I'm hungry what the hell are you going to do about it if this is his place what are we going to do about it that a billion people go hungry every night and 40,000 of them die of starvation every day. What are we going to do about that? I mean, how can we ever say that we love God when we look at someone who is hungry and naked and say, bless you, I hope you get something to eat? If this is his place, how can we ever withhold the gospel from one? How can we pass by on the other side? Well, there are a lot of other maxims we won't have time to deal with. You want to know them? Come up here and I'll give you the page of the book. You can find them in. Second thing. We use our religion, watch this, as a hiding place when it becomes an excuse for not being personally involved with others. I'm talking about when we use our spiritual devotion as an excuse to avoid practical acts of compassion. You know what I'm talking about. When somebody comes to us with a legitimate cry for help and we try to slip out from under that responsibility, frankly we don't have time, we have neither time nor energy, to really become involved in their burdens and problems. So what do we do? We go to church and we say a pious prayer and we give an offering, then we congratulate ourselves on our compassion. Why do you think that Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan? Why do you think he told that story? i tell you why he told that story. Because he wanted us to see how often we substitute religious exercise for practical compassion and ministry. And we're all guilty of it. Somebody put it like this. He said, I was hungry and you farmed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. Thanks a lot. I was imprisoned and you crept off quietly to your chapel and prayed for my release. I was naked and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me of the spiritual nature of the shelter of God's love. Wonderful little sermon. I was lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You're so holy, so close to God, but I'm still hungry, and I'm still lonely, and I'm still cold. Maybe we need to say it a different way. Maybe we need to say something like this. I know you've had a lot of things going on in your life, My husband and I want to come by tonight and get your kids and keep them for you. Don't worry about them. I want you and Bill to go out and have a night on the town, get something to eat, relax, have a good time. Or, I know you've been real sick and you've been in the hospital and I brought my old lawnmower by. It needs a little workout. I need the exercise. I'm going to mow your lawn for you today. Or... I've got a new recipe, and i got more than I need. Uh, you know, the recipe's made more than I thought it would. I hope you enjoy this for your evening meal tonight. Or, I know you don't like to drive in the city, so I want to pick you up tomorrow and take you for your doctor's appointment in Dallas. Or, I know you've been going through a lot of heartache and a lot of problems. You want to talk about it? Or, I know you're having problems with algebra. Can I help you? Now, there would be very few that would ever say something like that. I mean, maybe we should talk like that a little bit more. Maybe you've heard of Clarence Jordan. He's the guy that was the author of the, Kappus, uh, the Cotton Patch Gospel, kind of a slang paraphrase of the Gospels. He was also the founder of the Koinonia Farm in Georgia, and, and he, it was an experimentation of, of race relations in the 40s, and he got in trouble with the southerners, the rednecks. And his brother's name was Robert Jordan. He was an attorney, and he wanted—he had political aspirations. In fact, he became a senator and the chief justice of the Georgia Supreme Court. And one day, Clarence went, came to Robert, and he said, We're in trouble. I need you to represent me. And, and Robert said, Well, I, I can't do that. If I represented uh, your koinonia, you know the problems I would get with the." White supremacist. I mean, I would, my political aspirations would go down the tube. I'd lose everything. And Clarence said, well, we may lose everything. And Robert said, well, for you it's different. Clarence? And Clarence said, what's the difference? We got saved the same day. We, were, we, we went down the same aisle. We talked to the same preacher. What did you tell the pastor when he said to you, will you follow Jesus? And Robert said, I told him I would follow Jesus to a point. Let me tell you what Jeremiah's talking about. He's talking about following Jesus to the point where it cost us some practical involvement in the pain of others, and we quit. That's when our religion becomes a hiding place. Third, I want to come at it from a little bit different angle, We use our religion sometimes as a hiding place where we hide our problems from others. That is, we put on our I've got it all together face and come to church and say, man, I've got everything going for me. When all the time our religious exercise becomes a way to hide from the fact that we have an illness in our family that's scaring us to the point we can't even pray. Or, I'm about to face a decision I've got to make. I don't have a clue as to what to do. Or, I've got a teenage child that's rebellious. I've got a marriage that's on the rocks. And I wouldn't want anybody to know about it, much less my church friends. And so we come and we put on our religious face to hide that which deserves the intercession and the compassion both to give and to receive. Now, why do we do that? Well, I think partly because we're proud. We don't want to admit that we're vulnerable and mortal. I wouldn't want anybody to know that I have a problem. No, not me, because I'm big enough to handle anything that comes. I talked to a person one time in my study and they were telling me about a need they had, about a problem they were struggling with. I just identified with it. I just laid it out there. I just said, hey, I know what you're talking about. I'm struggling with the same thing. After I revived her from her faint, she said, I knew that I've always known that preachers have problems. I just never thought they would ever admit it. And I think we hide these problems because somehow we believe, somehow we thought that, that to say I'm vulnerable, I worry, I have depression, would be an indication that I don't have enough faith and that God's people never get depressed and they never, get, they never cry and they never worry. And we hide that, don't we? One Wednesday night, several years ago, we were meeting in the chapel. We were coming time for prayer request, and we were asking people to bring burdens and requests for prayer, and we were talking about the usual, gallbladder surgeries and, and uh, stuff like that. And, and, and so we started, we, we were winding it up. I never will forget it. We were winding up the time, and as we started to close the, the time, a young lady no longer goes no longer lives in Durant, goes to this church, said. Deep emotion, stirring. She said, Pastor, I, I, I really didn't mean to do this, but I'm, I've got a terrible problem. I'm going through a divorce, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm broken, up. I'm crushed. My bones hurt. And she said, I need prayer. I'm going to die, I think. I can't stand it. I don't believe I can live any longer. I am burdened. She said, can you, will you pray for me? And there was this wave of compassion that came over that group of prayer. I tell you, it was a defining moment, both for her and for me, and for some of our church members. That here was a person who had come into his house For after all, isn't that why God has brought us together? That we might share our burdens with one another and find strength and help. And there was this defining moment where all of a sudden we just felt one another's pulses and we knew that we were all in this together. That's called koinonia. One last thought, please. We use our religion often to hide from God as incredible as that sounds. We use our religious practice and the trappings of the event to keep from going one-on-one with God. For I tell you, it's a lot easier to go through religious services and do what we do here because it's a matter of form and practice than it is to go one-on-one with God. I, have, I was thinking the other day, I came to this profound thought. It's easier to struggle with Satan than it is to struggle with God. Because you never win when you struggle with God. And so we come and we go through the motions of our religious exercises because it's a lot less painful than to go one-on-one with him. Let me tell you something. If your religious faith and your, religious, your understanding of God is the same today as it was yesterday and will be the same tomorrow as it is today, somewhere along the way, you stop growing. And you found a comfort zone, a place of comfort, and you sat down there. And if you don't, don't, do not allow a sermon or a Bible lesson to to make you think, and if the words of Christ don't rebuke you and stir you and motivate you, then you've gotten to a place where you use your religion to hide from Him. You can't hide from Him. Now, I hadn't planned on doing this, but I think I will. Tell you about my old football days. (laughs) All these... uh, Play a little football, man! I was great. The farther I get away from Monday, the greater I am. I mean, I and and I was a little bitty, scrawny guy. Believe it or not, I was little. I weighed 145 pounds. I played I played defensive end, and we were getting ready to play the Merkel Badgers. Now, (laughs) boy, just to say the name just strikes terror in your heart. (laughs) Merkel, Merkel Badgers. Now, Merkel Badgers ran from a single wing. They just snapped the ball to the tail back, and he just ran one in, and he'd run the other in. It's a simple deal. And, and they had this blocking back. Now, you, you know what I'm talking about. Don't you? If I had a chalkboard, I'd... Give me the X's and O's. But they'd send the ball to the tailback and just block it back. He'd just lead interference. He was a lead blocker around the end. And he'd just wipe out. He was just like a human cannonball. He'd wipe out everybody. And his tailback went run. Well, we were getting ready to play the Merkle Badgers. We, we saw their film. We did have film back at far. We saw their film. And we saw what they were going to do. So the coach called me and True story. And he called me in. His name was Stuart. Coach Stewart said, "Gerald, he said, we're playing Merkle we got this single wing, got this blocking back. He's going to come around your end. And uh, there's a choke in his voice. Come around your side. And he, he, said, he said, now what are you going to have to do? He said, you're going to have to meet him head on. He said, if you dodge to the outside, go to the outside, he'll just, that blocking back just bump you outside and he'll cut inside on you. You step inside, he'll just bump you down the line, he'll go outside. He said, you're going to have to take on that blocking back head on. 144, 145 pound defensive end. I guess a 200 pound cannonball. (laughs) Found out the truth. That's the way you had to do it. Now listen to me seriously. I hope you didn't come this morning to this worship service thinking you could sidestep the main issue. For the main issue is God one-on-one. You, somewhere, sometime, you're going to have to meet him face up. And here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. He said, when you make this place a hiding place, when you do that, I'm going to make it like Shiloh. Now, that doesn't mean a thing to us. But if you'd have been a Jew and you had lived in that time, you would have gasped audibly. For Shiloh was the place where the first temple was, where Eli presided, and because of the crimes of his sons, the Philistines came against the Jews, killed a bunch of them. But the main thing they did was they took the Ark of the Covenant out of the house of God. Oh, the the very thing that represented the presence of God. And when the word came back to Eli that what had happened, he fell over dead and his two sons were killed in battle. And when the news got to one of their wives, one of the daughters-in-law of Eli, she died giving premature birth to a child. And the women were around and they said, don't worry, we'll give it a name. Now, that really is a blessing. Don't worry about it, dying. We're going to name your kid. And so they named the child. Who knows the name they gave it? Say it with me. Ichabod. Oh, no wonder they gasped. The glory of the Lord had departed. For when you make religion a hiding place, The glory of Almighty God is removed from His place and from everybody who worships there. That ought to be enough to cause us to want to do what is right. Let's pray together. Our Father, deliver us from the the hypocrisy that makes religion a place to hide. May we lay bare before you eyes today, our lives, with a willingness to do what you want us to do if it means to get up from here and go share the gospel with a hurting, lost world, if it means to get up from here and go feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoners, if it means dealing with you one-on-one, give us the heart to do it, the courage to do it, the will to do it. For I ask in Jesus' name. Now there are free invitations. Listen carefully, We've got plenty of time. Have you ever gone one-on-one with God in Christ Jesus? So, so, so you are a religious person, but have you ever dealt with your own relationship with God one-on-one? Have you ever surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ, to his lordship, to his power to save and change? he would sidestep that issue all the t- you know, forever. Maybe this morning you'd step out and come and say, I don't understand all of it. I just know this, that I have never given my life to Christ. I've never been saved. And come do that today. Or maybe you need to come this morning to place your life within the framework and the discipline of a New Testament church or to commit your life more fully to Christ. Maybe God is calling you to ministries of whatever kind. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.